Welcome to Ranching Reboot, where we are rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. In today's episode, we're joined by Brian Firebaugh, a Marine who found solace in ranching and is now a pioneer in regenerative agriculture. We discuss everything from electric fencing to the power of social media and marketing grass-fed beef, as well as the importance of mentorship and support systems in the ranching industry. Get ready to dive into the world of regenerative agriculture with Brian Firebaugh and learn how he's revolutionizing the way we think about farming and food systems. This episode is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals, the first step in regenerative agriculture. C90 offers a complete spectrum of natural minerals and trace elements that feed soil biology, enzymes, and fungi to regenerate your soil matrix and improve soil fertility. Soil with improved microbiology and mineral nutrition will grow protein-packed and nutrient-rich pastures that your animals will thrive on. Plus, our premium mineral salt offers five times the valuable minerals and trace elements versus leading competitors. Give us a call at 717-580-1458 and our experts will develop a custom program that fits your operation. Or visit our website to order smaller quantities, including for your garden. Visit c-90.com and use the promo code REBOOT to save $5 today. That's 717-580-1458 or c90.com with the promo code REBOOT. Once again, that's SEA-90.com, promo code REBOOT. So Brian Fireball, otherwise known as Cattle Guy or Texas Trail Boss, it's good to have you here. Welcome to Ranching Reboot, sir. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very kindly. But we were uh, just before we pushed the record button, we were uh, talking about our, our backgrounds here on Zoom. So uh, maybe when I put this on YouTube, y'all can see what we're talking about. But uh, we were both joking that we had to go back to pictures from last year to actually find something that looked good. Yep. That, that way our grass was actually green. Looks like we actually had grass. And hopefully by the time this comes out, we'll both had some rain and have some grass. So I think oh. we're, I'm like four or five weeks ahead right now. Yeah. So my, uh, and speaking of that, and, you know, I, I, I kind of don't like talking about how dry it is um, and complaining about it, but I was just looking, my dad gave me uh, his rainfall records that he's been keeping since 1985. So I have the data set I was looking at was 1985 to 2015. Okay. So I've got 30 years of rainfall records. Yeah. And it's, it's not broke down by day, but it is broke down by month. And just looking at the data and... Okay, so let me, let me preface this by rain during April, May, and June is what's going to grow most of my grass. Right. Okay. I'm going to grow probably almost all of my grass on the, on the rain in that 90 days. I was looking back historically, and of course, I didn't bring it down here because I didn't think I was going to talk about it. But um, historically, like if you just look at, look at the raw numbers, it mm-hmm. says that the lowest rain that we've ever received in April, May, June is 0.97. Well, that's not correct. If you actually go through and find the worst years, like find the one, find the worst two years, one of them is at four and one of them is at 2.4. Now I get those numbers don't mean a whole lot. So average, average for the 30 years was right at 10 and the high was 16.8. Okay. And the low was 2.4. So I'm virtually guaranteed to get two and a half inches of rain in the next yeah. 30 days. <laughs> that's, well, 
that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at. But uh, yeah. I think I think the light at the end of the tunnel is I went back and I looked at the at the January, February, March time frame. Yeah. And compared similar years in that 30 year block to what we've had in the first three months. Yeah. The good news is all those years kind of shaped up to be pretty good during during the growing season, you know, April, May, June, July, August. Good, 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 good. So, we, yeah. <laughs> we're looking similar, like we're back, we're going to have a repeat of the drought of 2012 when we look at our numbers down here. That was a, that was a pretty bad drought. But what's good is that it did not sustain for very long. So I'm hoping for the exact same, but there are people out there still predicting that this drought is actually going to continue throughout this year as well. So I'm I'm hoping they are wrong. I hope they're wrong too, but I think that as grass managers, I think we need to be planning. I think we need to be going into this grazing season, um, planning for more drought, planning for decreased yes. grass production. Yes. I just spent a lot of money doing exactly that. <laughs> well, tell me about it. Well, it's uh the, this drought here was a bit of a wake-up call for me. Um, and keep in mind, I don't have the years of experience that some of your other guests do that have been on your show here, been on your podcast. Uh, so I'm walking into this blindly and I'm learning as I go. And that's kind of the way that I go about things. I go all in and I'm either going to make it sink or swim. So uh, this was a bit of a wake-up call for me because we are noticed that we had uh, number one, overstocked our pastures. Uh, we weren't moving them. They were just grazing, just out there grazing. As, and it absolutely destroyed our tanks. Our tanks were completely demolished. I lost a number of head stuck I, in the mud. When you say tanks, I think of a fiberglass 16-foot tank, but that's not what you're talking about. No, I'm talking ponds. What do you, stock tanks? Uh, it, it's, I, I don't know what you call them. Refer I, I, I guess some folks call them dirt tanks or ponds. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So yeah, my, my tanks went completely gone and it was uh, such deep muck mud. I lost cows in that mud as they were just trying to find water and severely overgrazed our pastures to the point that I'm worried about how many years it's going to take to recover. And so we offloaded 90% of our herd uh, last year. Wow. Um, yeah, it's we went from 150 cows, something like that, down to 10. Uh, we we offloaded a lot of cows due to that drought. Um, but now I'm going to start getting into the regenerative grazing of moving every day. And so that's that's where the, a lot of the money was spent. We're talking the hot wire, the posts, you know, the chargers, you know, this kind of stuff and trying to figure out exactly and also rebuilding fence because I'm going to use part of my fence as some of those lines. And so I got to really shore up those uh, permanent fence lines. So that's where a lot of that that money and stuff was spent. And I'm going to do that to try and hedge off the amount of hay that we're buying because of the drought. So try and stockpile some grass uh, just out there on the pasture and stuff. And I'm going to start with the lowest amount of cattle that I possibly can right now to try and see what my capabilities are for the future. Okay. I, that's a, that's a really severe destocking of, you know, going from 150 down to like 10, 
That's well, the, just keep in mind, this all used to be buffalo grazing ground. We can grow grass like no other. Come spit on the pasture. We will grow some grass and I can I can house a ton of cattle on our property. The problem is, is when you stop spitting on the pasture <laughs> and it goes down the, the nothing. It just goes absolutely down nothing. And so the best thing for me to do at that period of time was start taking a look at our herd and start looking at the ones that uh, did not look the best right now when they were on hay and they did they still did not look the best call call hard let's get rid of these guys let's let's try and go back to the animals that you see here that would make it out here in texas during the droughts during the uh, the water shortages and stuff and try and get back to that good principle of an animal there that could sustain during these tough grazing conditions and ultimately when i took a look at our our herd of 150 like this one's gone we still got this one. This one's gone. 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 It's, you know, it's, I started realizing that there was only a couple within our herd that could actually sustain back to those uh, old previous conditions and what we are currently facing. Very cool. Very cool. Where, where are you exactly? Central Texas, uh, more specifically Hubbard, Texas is where I'm located. Okay. And that's kind of like in between Waco and and the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area? No, it's more of, I would say, but exactly between Austin and Dallas and Fort Worth. So we're kind of more in the middle. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm about 45 minutes outside of Waco. I know where uh, Del Rio is because my sister used to be there. San Antonio, oh, yeah. Corpus Christi, Houston, Dallas, and uh, what's that place that Bob Kenford's from? Uh, he'll tell me later, but it's way out in West Texas. Like it's, gotcha. it can't be farther West than Texas. <laughs> <laughs> like El Paso. Van Horn. That's where he's at. He's oh, at yeah. Van Horn. Yep. Which it's like even West of El Paso. I think. Yep. <laughs> so uh, tell me, tell me about the land. Tell me about how long have you guys been there and, uh, and what's the story behind the land? Uh, the land right here that we are currently on, we've only been here roughly about three years. Um, uh, I specifically moved from a place called May Pearl, Texas. Uh, that land was a lot of black gumbo clay soil, enough to where in the summers you could drop a Volkswagen down the cracks. And that's what I realized that when it came to buying a property and looking for our next, our next home is it wasn't the house that we were concerned with, with, it was the soil. And that's where things began to take kind of a turn from me. Instead of being a, a cattleman or anything like that, I would become a soil farmer. And everything basically started at the soil. And that's where I literally got hit on the head with start looking at the soil. So the one thing that I looked at is I was trying to find a property that uh, had a good sandy loam mix in the first couple, it was the first couple inches to a foot of soil, of topsoil, because I had heard, keep in mind, I don't come from this background. <laughs> I had heard grass grows well in well in well-drained soil. So and you start just pouring water and food coloring in a, in a clay mix vase or in a sandy loam base, you'll see that the sandy loam 
water drains a whole lot faster than the than the clay mix. So that's instantly what we kind of started looking for. We we tr- had to try and find an area where we can get out of the Blackland Prairie, that black gumbo clay of Texas. Uh, and it turned- where is that? Where's that black clay located at? It's ninety percent of North Texas. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it is sprawling, sprawling, and it's very, very tough, but you can find pockets of it that it is not there. For instance, where we are located at right here, it does have the sandy loam soil right there in the fo- in the top 12 inches, and then it moves into sandy clay, which I really like as well because that'll retain the moisture uh, sitting on top of that clay but it's still in the roots of the grasses there. But I also like it because I can literally dig a pond right here, right here, (laughs) anywhere, and it'll go ahead and hold water. So ultimately, we wound up choosing this place right here. Like I said before, it did used to all be buffalo grazing ground. um, And then there was a lot of actual wars. This is right near Battle Creek right over here. So I did some Google research on how did Battle Creek get its name. It's actually pretty cool. 12 surveyors wound up going to battle and they were ambushed against like 150 Native Americans and were killed uh, literally right here in the photo. So Battle Creek ends at my tank and the story goes that they were ambushed right near the tree line at the end of Battle Creek. And in the trees was 150 Native Americans that killed them. So those 12 surveyors were killed somewhere right about here in uh, in the picture, which I I just find absolutely fascinating regarding the history of land and everything that it has seen. But it just goes to show that this was a desirable place. If the Native Americans are sitting here, there's something very desirable about this land here. And I think I found it. I think the Native knew what was up. I think they knew where the good spots were and where they weren't. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I totally agree. I want to know more about your background now. (laughs) (laughs) where did you come from where did you go to school and how did you end up ranching oh man um i grew up in the colony texas it's suburbia at its at its finest uh then i wound up joining the marine corps left the marine corps bounced around i had a lot of troubles with my uh my transition out of the marine corps we'll put it that way i used to teach that's that's fair that's fair yeah i mean When did you serve? I served, let's see, 99 to 2004 on okay. active duty. Yeah. Uh, I, and- I wouldn't be at all shocked if we didn't, act, if we weren't at the same, weren't in the same location at the same time, because I was in from 98 to 06. Oh, how about that? Ever on the East Coast? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, I was, I was stationed in Camp Lejeune. Yep, spent a lot of time in Stone Bay where the rifle ranges were and such. And yeah, but then I was also always deployed. <laughs> I was on the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. So we were constantly out and gone. If you're a 26 MEU, I think they sailed with the, I think they sailed with Enterprise Battle Group when I was on it. I was on the USS Baton, the USS Saipan. And a couple others. Sounds familiar. We'll we'll have to get together some other time and compare yeah. notes. I, I bet yeah. we were in the same stretch of water and in, in the same time, <laughs> at least crazy. once. 
That'd be crazy. Yep. Well, anyways, after I after I got out of the Marine Corps, I had a I had a real tough time transitioning out. Uh, uh, I wound up teaching desert survival out in Arizona, and I was really struggling and suffering with my PTSD. Uh, ended up being homeless, and I was homeless for two years till my parents found out they came back from Africa. They were uh, missionaries in Africa. So they came back, they found me, they drugged me back home, basically made me live with them for a year, taking away of all of my stresses to try and pinpoint exactly what, what my problem was. And then uh, ultimately, they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and I wouldn't let them do anything anyways, because I was so bloody stubborn. So they took me to the Dallas VA. And uh, VA put me on a bunch of meds, literally sent me home with a box of meds. Uh yeah, but ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, I met my wife. I got a job working at a hospital. I was working there. I worked there for a total of 12 years until I quit, and I'm just doing this full-time now. But uh, I met my wife there. My wife started noticing the medications I was on. She was like, look, we're going to start weaning you off some of this. She was talking to the VA. They worked it all off to where I was completely weaned off of it. And this right now is my PTSD treatment. And that's one thing I, I don't think many people realize is that when we first, when I first moved in with my wife, April, I said that, you know, you're not a man until you own land. That's something that my grandfather always told me. Uh, you, you need to own land. So uh, we went out and we bought our first 11 acres in our, in our first house and three cows and one bull for, to keep the agricultural exemption. And that's when I realized how therapeutic it was to literally get off work and I would literally go up and I would brush one of the these cows while they were eating on some cubes and I would just literally brush on them and it was very just very therapeutic to take care of them and stuff now something kind of clicked at that moment so my wife was talking to the VA and I'm off of all the medications and and doing very well I would say all thanks to my wife and a couple cows that's awesome that you got off the you know quote box of pills that the VA gave yep. you. I I kind of stayed away from that place just for that reason because I don't need a box of chemicals to help me yep. feel right. I need these these animals behind me. You yep. Know? And it's amazing. Going out and sitting amongst your cows while they're grazing or loafing or just sleeping down by a creek where you can hear running water and the wind blow and the cow you know and the sound of cows eating grass. It's mind-boggling. <laughs> Absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. It's there. Oh, it brings a peace in my soul <laughs> and a happiness. It, it's it's one of those things that's really difficult. And you know, I, I totally agree with you that being around livestock on the land is 100% therapeutic. I mean, it's, it's PTSD treatment. It's, it's anxiety. It's just the general stresses of life tend to melt away when you walk into a pasture, a calm cows, and they don't care you're there. Yeah. They go on about their business and you can walk right up to them. Now I've got a couple pets I can go out and scratch, but I don't have any, I can go, I don't have any, I can brush. They're not quite that tame, but oh, yeah, I don't need any more. <laughs> you know, and, like taking a bag of cake, you know, some cubes out, getting a couple to eat out of your hand. It's, it's a rewarding experience. You know, there's probably some cattlemen that have been doing this for 40 years, rolling her eyes. You know what? I don't care. Roll your eyes. Yeah. That's fine. There's, there's a lot of guys out there like you and I that have 
a military experience, maybe more or less stressful, not to take anything away from anybody. Everybody's got a different experience. Yep. I this is, this is, this is the best treatment there is, I think for a lot of, a lot of things going on in our heads. Just get outside, go be with some cows. Yep. That's, people will talk about it if you really want to kind of get balanced whatever the words is that they that they're trying to come up with uh you're trying to just kind of ground yourself it's the best way to do that is to literally dig your toes into this stuff right here dig your toes right into some grass and start spending some time with some animals it is there is something and it's not only that i mean there is extreme stresses when you're dealing with cattle as well especially when you're trying to manage cattle for profit there's some extreme stresses that come involved, especially when you throw mother nature in there and stuff. For some reason, I can deal with those things. I can manage that. But there's just something so very therapeutic about literally working on fences. There's something so very therapeutic about literally hauling cubes out when it's 30 below and nobody's outside you know, just in order to feed your cattle, there's something therapeutic about that pain and that struggle in order to take care of these wonderful animals. And that's, that's ultimately what I absolutely love. When I've got to get dressed up in the winter and put on, you know, sweatpants and coveralls and a heated vest and a flannel shirt and a hoodie and a heavy coat and go out and break ice when it's nine degrees and 40 Mm -hmm. miles an hour wind. Um, those are the days I don't like it so much. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm going to put on every garment that I own and I'm going to go do CrossFit for two hours. Well, I, I got to be, I got to ask, have you ever shot a video while you were doing it? You know, that. okay. You're, you're, you're doing, you're great at social media. You're, you're better than I am. Okay. I never have a cameraman. Neither do I. <laughs> and a lot of times, like, you know, I, I've gotten in the mode because I've been doing this. I, I got out of the Navy in 2006. Okay. Mm-hmm. We spent summer of part of the summer of 06 and 07 learning the business. And in 08, I started to take over things on my own and do things on my own. And shit, forgot what I was going to say. Cameraman. Cameraman. Have... Yeah. Yep. So, so for like 15 years, you know, I'm just trying to do everything by myself. And I've been trying to, I've been trying to make content since like, I don't know, 2014. I started putting stuff on YouTube and started spinning up the Red Hills Rancher page. Lately, I've just kind of gotten out of it because it's so hard for me to come up with ideas. And, you know, this winter is, it's been a rough winter. I mean, not to complain about it, but, you know, when it hasn't rained for three years and the cows are looking really skinny, there's no grass it's kind of hard to get excited about filming a whole lot of stuff. And especially, especially when you're a one man show. So, you know, doing it, doing it by myself for so long, I I just have a tendency. I see something wrong and I just go fix it. I just go deal with it. And I don't think about, Hey, I should have taken five minutes and just set the camera up on this fence, set the phone on this fence post and hit record. Gotcha. Well, th- I was going to say, did you ever take a video of it? Because, you know, during those moments to when, you know, you are by yourself, it is cold, you were bundled up, you're out there doing work, and you're saying, you know, you're not so fond of those moments. I secretly am. I secretly there. It's something to be proud of, for me. 
And so that's exactly why I always take my my phone out or camera out and stuff. And I just record it even in 90% of it. It's literally just for me. 99% of it is literally just for me because I'm compiling all of these images, all these videos to kind of showcase where my life has been from, come from, from when I was sleeping in my Jeep to I'm now out here bundled up in the cold, helping to take care of cattle on my own land. I mean, that's just, that is mind boggling, amazing to me. So watching that transition of my life during those moments of time is the reason why I do it. And I just happened to post it to social media. <laughs> and, but it's because I'm, I'm proud of those moments. I'm, I'm, I am proud of that and I do enjoy them, but yeah, ultimately it's, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't want to take away from any of that at all. You know, it's like we do what's necessary and yep. take steps to try to, you know, reduce that labor and make life easier for the animals. But when mother nature does throw us a curve, you know, we've got to go out and do some of those hard things like put on every garment you own in February for two weeks and go, you know, crack ice in tanks or crack ice in a pond so your cattle can get in and drink. Then, you know, we we look at things like, you know, guys calving in January and February in North Dakota. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, make a video of pulling that calf out of a snowbank. You're going to look, that's going to look good. Maybe we shouldn't be calving in January. That That might be a smarter choice fact so you know i i get what you're saying but i also see that there's some things there's some things that that guys put on social media not you and you know i try not to do it that they do it like for sympathy like oh look at how tough oh, yeah. it is that we're calving in january and we got to go pull calves out of a snowbank well hey yeah. guy that's your choice yep like most of the time that was your choice you determined when to put that bull in so that determines when that cow is going to have that calf and if you don't like pulling calves out of snowbanks in January, maybe you should try calving in April or May or, you know, even later. Oh, Just yeah. Thought. Yep. I had when uh, I, had, I had a calf that went down, got stuck in that tank in the muck, in the mud. Overnight, the coyotes came in, started eating on his back end. I found him the next morning, had to go ahead and put him down. Uh, that was one of those things. It was like why didn't I share that social media? Well, it's number one, because it would be exactly that. You're just asking for sympathy, not only that, but it would be taken down very, very quickly. But um, it was also one of those things when you start looking back on it, it was like, I really struggled with that. I didn't sleep for a couple of days. I really, really struggled with that. That was my mistake. That was a mother. I knew that tank was going dry. I knew that mud was an issue, but why didn't I cordon off the, the cattle from going in there? I, sh I should have done that. I, I could have done things a whole lot differently in order to save that calf's life. And I did not. Why in the world would you ever put that on social media? Except for to say, this is a learning lesson for everyone else out there. Don't make the same mistake I did. Yes. Yes. And there's a lot those are the ones that hit me the worst is where there's a negative outcome that I didn't, that I should have seen coming and probably ignored the signs and made a decision anyway. Like the most dangerous words I can tell myself in my own head is, Oh, that'll be fine. Oh yeah. <laughs> they won't go in there. That yeah. won't happen. Don't worry yeah. about that. Yep. The, 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 that's the worst self-talk I can ever have because as, as soon as I say that, I go home, 
three hours later, I'm sitting here going, you're obsessing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. Oh, man. Uh, So, yeah. Tell me, tell me some more about how you're converting to rotational grazing. You know, you're, you're talking about that. So it was, you're kind of have to take a, a year off and it was a lot of money. You don't, yeah, the electric fencing, it's not that expensive when you're compared to a five no. or wire. Oh no. And that was the amazing thing. It's when you, I started looking at the cost of fencing around here and just, just fixing, just fixing my fence is going to be roughly about $10,000 and that's just mending it, uh, of the fence around our property. Uh, when you start looking at, you know, the electric fencing, when I said, I just, I just paid a lot of money. I mean, I just paid a thousand bucks. So comparatively, we're not talking large sums of money, but to me, you know, a hundred bucks is a lot of money right now. So (laughs) I I I get it. Yeah. So, but going out there and buying the reels, going out there and buying the wires, going out there and buying the posts. I've, I've gone through several posts, the step in posts that's, so I bought the cheap white ones, you know, you step in the plastic ones that get so brittle and the cows touch it and they shatter to pieces. So now I'm buying the expensive, like six, $7 posts. <laughs> so uh, trying to make sure that I've got a, a good proper setup here, but that's the wonderful thing is now it's a buy once cry once type thing with those posts. So yes, when you're speaking comparatively to permanent fences, this is a much, much cheaper endeavor and it's one of those things uh, I have to remember that I can actually hold back an entire herd of Texas Longhorn cattle with dental floss as long as they know it's there. So yep. I just have to keep it simple. I have to keep it very simple and just go back to that understanding is it doesn't take much to hold back a, a big herd. I've, I've liked to say for a while that fences are a psychological barrier. Like Yes. The thought that that cow can't jump a one strand wire that's three feet off the ground just because it's electrified is fallacy. She's staying there because she wants to stay there. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And I, when you said dental floss, I just about lost it because I say that all the time. Like my cows will stay behind wet dental floss. If they think I have an energizer hooked up to it. (laughs) (laughs) I even went like on purpose. I turned the energizer off. And oh yeah. Left it off for 45 days. No kidding. I had nothing get out. No kidding. No kidding. These wow. I've, I've also had this is on a herd that's been here for three years. They've never not been exposed to an electric fence. Almost every paddock I have has at has at least one electric fence line in it. Yeah. So they've been around electric fence. For literally three years since they got here. Okay, which which goes against uh, conventional wisdom of saying that the only reason why cattle don't go near that wire is because they can hear and they can sense that electric shock sending through. You turned it off for 45 days and they still didn't go across it. Yeah. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible to me. We also... We also did a couple rotations during that time. I think uh, three, four pasture moves during that time. They don't mess with it. Or maybe they do. Like, okay, yeah. 
maybe when I, maybe for the, you know, 20 or so hours a day when I'm not there, maybe as soon as they see my truck go over the hill, they're like, all right, he's gone. And they all jump over the wire and throw their <laughs> everyone they want. And when they hear me come back, they jump back over. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're generally where I leave them. I mean, I, it's the, with my cows, having them, they've been here for three years. My clients, cows, I've had, they've been here now for 15 months. They, they came in October of 21 and they haven't left. They didn't even have an energizer down there. I, I just, I had a problem. I took the energizer back to the shop and I forgot to take another one down there for a month. Yeah. They didn't get out. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, once they get trained to it, once they kind of get, when, once you've had them on a program of rotations for so long, they, they start to learn to trust you that, hey, before we, before we start getting hungry in here, he's going to come let us go somewhere else. Yeah. I, and I think there also is something that they can sense when the wire is hot and when it's not. Okay. So you think, okay. I, yep. I, I agree with that. I mean, I've watched enough fresh cattle, enough green cattle go investigate a hot wire for the first time. Mm -hmm. I've watched, you know, experienced cattle experience deal with my fences for the first time. Cause you know, like I don't build electric fences like the farmers around here do. I use, you know, totally, I use different posts, different insulators and different wire. It looks different to the cows. Yeah. And I can tell that when, you know, one of them has been exposed to different kind of, different kind of wire or different kind of post, you know, they have to stop and look and see what the, I've got going on. And after that, I don't have any problems with them. Good to go. I, That's do, all. I do have one cow that has immense respect for electric fence, but she has none for a barbed wire fence. Oh, <laughs> Oh, I've, I've had to deal with so many of those. <laughs> Are they in your freezer? Yes. <laughs> and I've got one that doggone it. It's I'm just waiting for her to grow up so I can put her in my freezer. Best place to put those fence jumpers and, and fence crawlers is in a freezer. Oh yeah. And she'll walk through any fence. It just drives me nuts. I have one. She's probably, I think she's probably about a seven or eight year old cow. You know, I got her, you know, of course I got her as a used cow. Used mm -hmm. cow. That's a good one. Um, yeah. <laughs> but her horns and she's pretty tame. She's one of my, she's one of my K core pets. She'll come up and eat out of my hand, but her horns, like her horns just have scratches. Oh, just back and forth, just scratch yep. from, from root yep. to tip. And I'm like, yep. Yeah. I know yep. how you get those. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I had her sorted off. I actually had her sorted off about a month and a half ago. And, um, I, you know, we sorted her off, put her in her, put her a trap with some other ones. I left, come back the next morning. She wasn't in a trap. She was just standing out in the middle of the herd. I drove the whole fence. Couldn't find anything wrong with it. Yep. Like whatever, whatever you just, next time she gets captured, she's getting in a trailer with a closed top <laughs> there you go <laughs> he's gonna go find another job yep yep yeah that's ultimately i am the, the pasture that you see here in my picture this was this was sprayed it was fertilized and this is when it was just starting to come up it was magnificent it was beautiful absolutely loved it um that was also a part of my problem is when I would notice cow patties would sit there forever. 
would sit on that land forever enough to where I need to get out now in the tractor and drag a harrow to see if I could break those things up, you know, and started watching some TikToks. A lot of people think that TikToks and the social media out there is all going to be kids dancing and stuff like that. That's where I found you. That's, that's where it is. I found Michael, uh, that, you know, these regenerative ranchers and started talking about the soil health, started talking about the cow patties, started talking about, you know, the dung beetles and started talking about these things. And I went, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want. And so I learned actually a whole lot from you and those regenerative ranchers on TikTok enough to the point that it's like understanding that that's what I want to go into. So as of right now, my pastures do not look like this, you know, thank you drought, but I'm also not spraying right now for weeds and I'm not worming my cattle anymore. That was the other thing. My 150 head, it's that they would get wormy so fast. And so I started, I culled them hard and kept the ones that were not wormy. Uh, they had a natural resistance to the worms and such. So that's the direction that I'm moving into because of the drought, but also because I'm wanting to move it back into better soil. I am on a mission for my very first dung beetle in this place. I am very, very much on a mission for that. Uh, that's that's when I think that I know I'm I'm definitely moving our soil health in a positive direction. So that I was waiting for the push, I guess you could say. This drought it was a shove. I think it's a, sh it's, it's a shove for everybody in agriculture. It's just the question of which direction you're going to let it shove you. Oh yeah. You either become a feedlot or you start looking at things a little bit differently and you start looking at your soil health. And that's, that was honestly my, my biggest struggle is because I wanted to take all of these cows, throw them into a pasture, turn it into a feedlot, go ahead and feed them grain and feed them hay every single day and try and recoup my money from them. Uh, but that sacrificial pasture that they would be in may not recover for years and years and years and years and years. And I, it was, it really became a, an internal battle within myself of how, how do I progress forward? And it was trust in the Lord to provide and cull hard and do what I think is right. Something that I know I can hang my hat on end of the day saying that I did something good for our soil health, but also for our cattle as well. For sure. And it's and amazingly enough, the Lord has provided. Yep. Go figure. <laughs> it's kind of amazing how fast the dung beetles will come back. If you make a small, if like you just cut the dewormer out. Like, Oh yeah. Cut, cut ivermectin out. Okay, great. If you want to take it for COVID, fine. But cut the ivermectin out of your cows, and it's amazing how fast you'll start to see soil life come back. And it's not just the dung beetles that the ivermectin affects, right? I mean, right. It's, it's worms. Yes. It's, it's all the little nematodes that are living in the soil. Now, I say that. I've never used ivermectin. I mean, I'm sure it was used on the ranch when it was like brand new and super popular, but we haven't used any in probably seven or eight years. Yeah. Like I just, uh, just about a month ago when I brought my cows down, ran them through, I was starting to see a little bit of lice and it's kind of funny. Cause I just, I probably could have preg checked the cows based on who had lice and who didn't pregnant oh, cows funny. did not have lice. 
and the ones that were open did. That's too funny. Yeah. So I, I'm going to try to watch that a little bit closer next year and maybe yeah. use that as a culling criteria. Um, but as far as, you know, lice and ticks, ticks I'm a little less concerned about. If I see a cow covered in ticks, she gets a black mark in the book and she yep. needs to get on the bus next opportunity. You know, the ones that are ate up with lice that are like the lice carriers, the lice bringers that are yep. you know, the first ones to get infected. Okay. They're probably the ones that are, that are not great. They're bringing the lice and they're infecting the rest of the herd. Black mark in the book. Yep. Your camp. I, you know, I don't think the, the ideal that we'll ever be able to get away from, you know, all the insecticide, all the porons, all the drenches, everything. I don't think we'll ever be able to completely wean ourselves off of them, but using them less than using them in maybe a little bit more intelligently. And by that, I mean, okay, if you have a problem with worms, which there are ranches that have worm, worm issues. Yep. And, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, different cows have different levels of resistance, you know, to the worms. Some are going to be completely naturally resistant. Some are going to walk by a worm and, and they'll be just, and they'll be just full of them. We got to find those animals that are very susceptible to things like, you know, the worms that can't perform in a drought that can't rebreed on poor grass. And we need to start pulling those out of our, out of our production systems. I yes. say all the time, you can feed condition and fertility into anything. And I think a lot of guys found out this winter, how expensive that condition and fertility really is. Yep. And that right there is the reason why I moved into such a small herd. Yep. Absolutely. And your comment about that, you know, you're either going to have a sacrifice. Yeah. Can't talk today. A sacrifice pasture that was probably never going to recover. And you're just going to turn it into a feedlot with 150 cows. I think that's the trap that a lot of people get in. Mm -hmm. The resource that they're taught to understand is, is by the hay bale, the alfalfa bale, the corn, the distiller's grain. They're not taught a lot about grass in range management. At right. least, at least from the people that, that I have experience with that have come out of some of the range management and range science programs. And they don't really teach a whole lot about soil. And it's, it's disappointing. It is. It very much is. I've seen it. I've got a pasture here that I've got uh, some of our beef cows on. And it's basically a feedlot. They're turned out on pasture, but it's, it's exactly that. Uh, it's an overstocked pasture. And you can see it. You can see the scarring in the land. You can see the difference of the soil. I mean, you you got to take a shovel out there and chill out this chisel out the soil from from that pasture. When out here, you could literally just grab your hands and grab handfuls of soil. Uh, you can see and feel the difference, and that's that was the clicker for me. When you when you're looking at paper, and you start looking at the profit potential of that pasture versus the profit potential of this pasture over here with a whole lot less head on it, you know, you are very much going to lean towards the direction of the feedlot pasture when you're looking at numbers on paper. It's get your hands in the soil and it, it'll take you back the other direction. And that's ultimately what I had to do. Not only are we living as my house next to this pasture, and do you really want to live next to that? 
but it's really thinking about getting back to that soil and number one of being a grass farmer a soil farmer and it's just i felt like that was a greedy way to go and this one would be payoff in dividends in the future is the way that i decided it and so that's the way i looked at it and that's why i moved in that direction as i'm thinking future me instead of now me yeah yep i think uh you know, we, we can manage for long-term, let me back up. So like the feedlot model, high production, high inputs, mm -hmm. high turnover. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of money. It's fast. And you know, there's a bunch of other people that, you know, you're going to have to buy crap from. So it's a well-supported system. That's for a lot of economic profit. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with economic profit. I like economic profit economic profit is good but where conventional systems totally miss the boat is in the ecological profit yes okay what the well, hell is ecological profit yep it, it's kind of hard to nail down but i would say ecological profit is the ecosystem goods and services benefits that you're providing and the soil health benefits you're providing mm -hmm. so as a as a cattleman and a land manager, I'm not just in the business of trying to grow the best quality grass fed beef that I can, you know, no hormones, antibiotics, you yep. know, all, none of the bad stuff, but I'm also creating clean air from my land mm -hmm. that the, the trees make from carbon dioxide, the grass makes from photosynthesis from carbon dioxide It's making oxygen. We're sequestering carbon. You know, the, the plants do that where you sequester carbon in the soil. I'm also providing clean water. I've got creeks that start on the ranch and run through the whole ranch and go on to the neighbor. Yep. You know, how much benefit does all of the water that flows off the ranch do? Me, none. Does it do the neighbors any good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If I take that water and I dam it up and I use that to irrigate my pastures. Yeah, I could spend a lot of money and not grow a lot of grass, but that's my water. I could take all that, screw the neighbor downstream. Well, the neighbor downstream has just as much of a right to that water as I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to use what I need and I'm going to pass the rest down to him. And I'm not going to take any out of the watershed, not going to move it to another watershed, not going to do some kind of unnatural usage with it. Right. I mean, yeah, I pump water out of the creek. I store it, stock tanks, but it all stays, it all stays in that drainage. And yeah. the volume of water I pump out compared to how much water goes down the creek, it's not much, not right. much at all. So the clean water, clean air, clean food, those are things that it's more difficult to put a price on. But if anything that we, that society should have showed us in the last three years, those things, those unquantifiable benefits are extremely important. Yes. And profitable. Can you, be. you, you, you can profit on that. Uh, for instance, we, when we're selling our beef, I'm, I provide beef directly right to the consumer. I take our cows, take them onto the processor. And that's the beef that I'm providing directly to, you know, our, the end consumer. So it's, 
I'm doing all that. I can actually make a living doing that with less cattle than the conventional just take cattle to the sale barn and sit at the morning coffee house and sip coffee every morning for the rest of the year. Uh, so it's, it is a lot more work, but at the exact same time, it's, I am selling a whole cow directly right to the end consumer because it is a grass-fed, hormone-free, antibiotic-free uh, cow and beef. So I'm selling that to the end consumer for like $9 a pound hanging weight. People will pay it. They will buy that. It's And so that's what I have to try and convey is if I do the feedlot route, it's I'm probably not going to be able to sell that cow for $9 a pound hanging weight. I will sell it for probably $3.50, $4 a pound hanging weight. If but you're lucky, if you're lucky, you get oh, yeah. more yep. on the rail. I think exactly. The best I've been offered for my cattle, and I just got blueness certified like a month, month and a half ago, Audubon Constitution nice. Ranching. I got offered 350 hot hanging rail. My goodness why <laughs> yeah I, I i can't get i mean yeah it's better money than i'd get at the barn but i'm still giving them away yeah i mean i i can do way better than that throwing them in the grinder okay yeah you're not you're not doing that route are you no no oh, okay <laughs> no but i mean it's a it's an outlet and i was just kind of throwing it out yeah. there that, you know that that that's an offer for you know, all natural grass cattle is 350 hot hanging weight on the rail. Wow. Wow. I, yeah. and, and when you get right down to it, you know, I, I don't think the guy that made that tell me that number is a listener. Yes. Hopefully I don't uh, upset yeah. that relationship. Um, but yeah, I, I can do a lot better taking the locker and selling for eight, nine a pound. I mean, yeah. There's probably somebody listening to this. It's like you get nine dollars a pound for ground up Longhorn. You're nuts. I can't even sell my Angus for four fifty. Well, yeah, market. Yep. I mean, yeah, and it's it's all about the marketing, which is the reason why I'm on I'm on social media and I do so much of the social media stuff. It it started out as a way to market my cattle. Let's face it, you're trying to market Texas Longhorns. You know, you need to get creative when you're going to market these animals. But then it came time to do the beef aspect of it. And that's when I went into this full bore. I quit my job. I was strictly doing beef directly right to the consumer. And that's where the social media came into play. And I had to find my niche. And my niche was, is the lean grass-fed Texas Longhorn. And so I can show people, I can literally show people the data it's lower in calories, cholesterols, saturated fats, unsaturated fats. It's, you know, it's, it's lower. It's this beef can actually be a part of a daily and nutritious, healthy, heart healthy beef diet. That's that just blows people's mind. Yes. Red meat. That's because, you know, and I'll get on my social media and I say this animal right here, it's, it's ground beef is actually leaner than Turkey. You can actually eat this animal and that's where the marketing came into play with me on social media and the reason why i am able to sell this animal for the price that it is i'm selling for is i'm appealing to that clientele the the people that want exactly that yep it i think that's what all a lot of the commodity folks and you know the, some of the bigger operators seem to miss is they don't they can't take advantage of a niche and 
I, I, I almost cringe when I say that because I'm referring to grass fed, you know, the grass fed beef or pasture finished beef as, as a niche. I, and I guess it still is, but it's also the fastest growing niche in the food industry. Yep. Like, and you know, for all the press that, that fake meat gets, like they're not even, they're not even growing now. Like they captured like a very, very small percentage and they can't keep, and they're not growing because nobody wants that product. Exactly. What is growing? Grass-fed beef. Yep. People, it's, you've said it all the time on your social media. It's shake the hand that feeds you. People want to know uh, how that product is being raised, how, how it's processed. They want to see where this animal lives, you know, and, and how it goes about its day. And that's the wonderful thing about our social media is I can actually show them here, take a look at my cows. They're out here on the pasture. Oh, by the way, we're selling this cow right now. It's out there on the pasture. I could say we're selling this cow. I'm going to, you know, it's, I'm going to take it to the processor. I've got the date, you know, TikTok. Just let me know if you're interested. Social media. Let me know if you're interested, if you want to buy this whole cow. That's, that's the amazing thing because now, and I just recently had to leave out of the country to do some filming recently and so my wife had to take over for me during that month that i was out of the country and so i made a post where i was like hey we're selling these these couple cows they're ready to go to the processor y'all let me know if you're interested we've already got the dates set up and everything and we'll deliver right to your door my wife had to feed through a thousands of emails and messages and stuff of people asking for the details on that that's literally what it takes is people could literally see the animal they could see how it's raised the conditions it's raised in and it it's been absolutely marvelous and that's why social media is such a big thing for me is because it's it's a way for me to market that niche and it is a different people ask me all the time they're they're like well how how does it compare you know this the beef production with these animals how does it compare with the beef production of the angus and it's like well i don't know i can't speak to that I've never, not only have I never dealt with that before, I'm starting to now, and I'll get into that in just a bit, but um, it's ultimately, I'm not trying to compete against Angus. This is a different product. It's just, and so I'm just selling my own, my own product that I know about packaged in, into this product. And that's, that's what the niche people, I can't say all people, because it's obviously not all people, but the people that are interested in that product, that box that's what's in it and so that's why i do the social media the way that i do is to try and appeal to those folks okay you getting any uh you getting any value back out of your hides or horns hides no uh there's there's zero value in the hides and it it really stinks it really sucks uh, so i can take the hides from these animals right here i take them to the processor and i can get them back I can get them back every single time. They will go ahead and keep it for me and give it back to me. The problem is, is then getting it to a tannery. So there are, there are people who will tan hides here in the United States. As a matter of fact, the last one that I found was in Carrollton, Texas, and they will take this cow right here and they will take her and tan her hide and give it back to me in roughly about two years. And they're going to charge me $800. 
That's very, very difficult to do. I mean, sure, if it was like my prize cow or something like that, I would go ahead and do it. But it's very, very tough to turn around and sell that product back to back to a consumer for a thousand bucks, you know, so you could profit your two hundred dollars on the darn thing. Um when they could go down to their local tractor supply and they could purchase something that looks very, very similar for $200. So that's ultimately there's nothing there. And now, so let's consider taking that hide and selling it to a tannery in Mexico or something like that. That starts to begin cost prohibitive as well. Because you need a truckload. You need a truckload, but you have to salt them all or freeze them all. It's like, I just, I don't have the wherewithal to do that. It's just, no, I can't do that. So what I do is I just give it to the processor and they've got somebody that comes by once a week and picks up a truckload of hides. Now, when it comes to my, the heads and the horns, this is another aspect of when I'm selling the beef, when somebody is buying, let's say this animal over here for me, for their beef, for their freezer, a whole beef, right? They get that whole animal. If they want the hide, I will give them the hide. If they want the head and the horns, I will give them the head and the horns. When they are buying this animal, they are buying that animal. So they can get all the meat, bones, everything out of it that they would like. And that's turned out to be one of the biggest sellers for us because people start taking a look at these massive horns and stuff for decorations. And they start seeing that they're costing, you know, a thousand dollars or more. That's all of a sudden that animal with all of her beef starts to become a little bit you know, uh, they want it. I, I'd never thought of it like that. And that's a great perspective that, you know, you're also like selling the head as like a trophy along with the meat that's going to be in their freezer. So they could point to the one on the wall and be like, yep, that's what we're eating. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I, I found that, uh, that horned cattle skulls, are worth about 20 to 30% less when they've got a bullet hole in them. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't have that problem. <laughs> I just, I just don't. Well, and there's also ways that you can do in order to cover up that bullet hole and such, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I simply don't have the, that problem. The reason why I don't have that problem though, is because most of these skulls are going back to the person that is buying the beef. And they know that it's being harvested from that live animal. So they, they understand that it's going to come with that hole. Does your processor clean those, clean and mount them for you? Or? Nope. Nope. It's, that's the thing is we don't clean or mount them. So when I deliver the beef, you know, they're getting the head with all the meat and everything still attached to it. So I tell people that uh, when I go to drop off your beef, you can go ahead and take this head. I'll throw it in the bed of your truck. I'll I'll do whatever. Put it in your backyard. Put it in your front yard. Uh, but you could take it to any taxidermist you wish. A lot of people are literally just sticking them on ant mounds, or they're buying a box full of beetles and sticking it in a in a bag and letting the beetles do the work for them. So that's what all of my previous customers are doing. I've had some customers that had paid me to drop off their beef and then to also drop it off at their uh, taxidermist. No problem with that either. As long as somebody is paying for it. Yeah. I'll, I'll make that trip. I'll go drop that off for you. No problem. Exactly. Sir. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yep. You, you made a comment that I want to circle back to. And I think the quote was, do you want to live next to that? Oh and, yeah. You know, I, 
I'm not going to say that kind of hits home, but it's definitely relevant. And I've never really thought of it like that when I'm, you know, just cruising around here. So one of these days you're going to come up and you're going to visit me and we'll, you know, we'll jump in the truck and go burn a tank of fuel and tour the Red Hills. And you can kind of see what's around here. I'm excited. So from where I'm at going west and south, it's all hill, hills and rangeland. About 20 miles east, it transitions to farmland. About, I just call it 20 miles north, it transitions to farmland. And when I say transition is a farmland, everything is on a north-south grid on section lines. Like gotcha. we call it square land. <laughs> okay. Yep. So when you go when you go to square land, I mean everything's just, you know, everything's either north, south, east, or west, and everything's on a section line. It's like, okay, yep. how many? Four north, four north, three west. Got it. I know where I'm going. <laughs> but what we we don't have. I mean, okay. So in the middle of the square land, you know. A lot of this area was uh, Homestead Act, late 1880s, you know, the yep. you know, 160 acres, mule barn, whatever. So all the properties, you know, everything's on a 160 acre block. And, you know, lately driving around, it, it's, do you want to live next to that? Do you want to live in between a corn pivot and a soybean pivot that are both bare for nine months out of the year? Yeah, they yeah. look great when they're growing. But for six to nine months out of the year, it's bare soil that's blowing. Yeah. And what all stuff is sprayed on those fields while it is growing and in order to make it grow? How many trips does that sprayer make through the field? You want to live next to that? Yeah. You want to live next to that, you know, those extend ready soybeans they're spraying that on. And on the other side of your house is Roundup Ready corn that that gets sprayed every year. Do we really want to live next to that? I mean, I don't. I yeah, definitely yeah. don't. And that's that is exactly my point. It's when I'm talking about living next to it too. I'm literally talking about a hundred yards, and there's the pasture, type thing. And you know, we're adopting a little boy, so I've got you know this little boy that's about ready to start taking his first steps and stuff, and he's going to be running around in our in our yard and stuff like that, literally touching a fence line that shares with what could potentially be a feedlot type situation and it's that's that's not what we want to do with our land it's just ultimately it's do you do you really want to raise your children when they're home this isn't like they go to see daddy at work type situation it's their home and they go up and they touch that soil it's that's not necessarily what i want to do right here because we are with this place now that we've lost our lease land as well we're living on the land that we're we've got cattle on we're actively living right here and it surrounds the house because our house is basically in the middle of our property so it's it's we don't want it we don't want that around us we we just simply don't i was when you were talking i just had this really powerful image in my head and it, it's probably a picture I've seen, an actual picture of a friend of mine on social media. And they're like, they're standing on their front porch and they're looking out and, you know, you can see steel pipe, rail fences, concrete feed bunk, feedlot, basically. And it's just, you know, 50 yards across the driveway from, mm -hmm. this front, from a front porch. And let's just say they've got a couple small kids. Yeah. Okay. Weather like we had yesterday or the day before where it was 50 mile an hour wind. 
hasn't mm-hmm. rained in six months. You know, it's going to be dusty and nasty. Is that what you want your kids to walk out and see? Is that what you want them to see every day when they get off the school bus? Yeah. Is that what or, you want to see first thing when they wake up in the morning? Or do in, inhale to ingest. I mean, when that wind is blowing. I mean, it's, yeah. Oh, it's air quality in Western Kansas has not been great yep. <laughs> for a long time. It's it's kind of nice. The wind isn't blow, hasn't been blowing the last two days, and I haven't been coughing and coughing mud. You ever coughed up mud? Yes, I have. Yeah. No, thank you. What's... I don't even think the dust was this bad in the Middle East. I don't know. Some of those sandstorms. <laughs> Some of those know. sandstorms. They were they were they were nasty, but yeah. Uh the out in West Texas, uh, out when we had the uh the wildfires out here in Texas, that was some of the west the worst wind I've ever experienced in my life. The worst amount of dust I've ever experienced in my life, but that was also just after wildfires and there was nothing holding the soil down. So that was uh that was what right at a year ago, wasn't it? Down there. Yes, sir. Exactly a year ago. Yep. Oh fire fire right now would be really scary. And I think what saved us up here is most ranches don't even have enough grass to burn. Oh yeah. See, there was ranches like the R.A. Brown Ranch. Yep. Out here in Throckmorton, I noticed they uh, they suffered some wildfires last year, and it burned a good portion of uh, one of their pastures. And man, looking back on it now, though, wow, wow, wow! Talk about the blessings that fire did for their land. Fire can be fire is an amazing tool on the range, mm-hmm. and it kind of almost doesn't matter when it burns it's how you manage it after it burns and and that that recovery after it burns is really really critical for long-term health of the land and you know there's a lot of folks that are afraid of fire okay i get it i get it i've also been burning pastures out here in the red hills since i was eight like literally i've had a drip torch in my hand for 35 years every spring not this spring and not last spring because it you know it just hasn't rained but you get what i'm saying yep and some of the best the best grass i've ever had was in 2016 after the wildfire came through yeah but it also rained that year like i think that that was that fire got started in oklahoma on the 22nd of march and it burned through here the 23rd and 4th and it finally got put out like the 26th is when it stopped growing. And I think they finally said it was out on the 28th when we got four inches of snow. Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, for the couple of weeks after you're dealing with a burn you're, or wildfire, especially in, you know, early spring, late March, early April, it's not uncommon on the plains to get a 50 mile an hour wind and 50 mile yeah. an hour wind on a freshly burned pasture is not a very pleasant place to be for man or beast. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Yep. Absolutely brutal. But what in uh in 2016, I think it was about the middle of April, it's like April 15th, we got 7 inches of rain in one rainstorm. Wow. Yeah, so imagine having the whole ranch completely burn off. Yeah. And, and then then- 3 weeks later, 
seven inches of rain. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot of mud. It was a lot of mud. Uh, there are some canyons that got, kind of got filled with some black mud, uh, yep. you know, from the, from the soot that hadn't blown away from the 70 mile an hour winds. I mean, we, it was ugly and I took plenty of pictures that I don't like going back to look at. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. My goodness. <laughs> it, it was interesting, you know, talking about the hides, you know, you've got some pretty animals. They, those hides would be highly ornamental. Yes. Uh, you know, what you see behind me, most of these are customer cows, all the black ones, you know, mine are the, you know, the odd spotted ones that you kind of see scattered around. Getting a hide back. Like I, I haven't even looked at it. I haven't even tried because I've heard so many similar stories like you just relayed that, yeah, I can get the hide back from the processor. No problem. They're happy to give it to you mm -hmm. in a bag, in a bag, warmer, a bag frozen. Great. But then you got to do something with it. Yep. And, you know, if we were Tyson or IBP, we just throw it in a train car. Or yep. A Connex box and ship it to China and have it turned into leather in China. Right. Finding a U.S. tannery that will take a hide from you for a reasonable price and a reasonable turnaround time. I haven't been able to find like two years and a thousand bucks. Yep. No wonder there's no, no wonder USA made leather isn't a thing anymore. Correct. Yep. You know, we, we slaughter 60 million cattle. Not sick. Not, we don't slaughter 60 million a year. We slaughter like 650,000 a week. Right. Okay. We're slaughtering 650,000 animals a week. Where are the leather tanneries in the United States? I think there's just, there's just a handful. Yeah. And they don't do jobs for guys like you and me. Nope. <laughs> it's disappointing. It's disappointing because it's part of that whole narrative. Oh, we got to feed the world. We got to feed the world. Well, we're feeding the world by growing corn and soybeans, shipping leather to China to ship back here. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, have you been to a tannery? I have not. I personally have not. I haven't either, but I watched a dirty jobs once. Oh yeah. And Mike Rose said it was one of the worst smelling places he'd ever been. I am not at all surprised. So if a guy like Mike Rose says it smells bad, <laughs> it probably smells bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so tell me about rooster. I want to hear the story of Rooster. So Rooster is the little baby boy we are adopting. Uh, my wife and I are not able to have children. We've always decided, we've always said that we will foster to adopt. Uh, my wife was in foster care as she was growing up. Uh, she was not adopted, but her foster parents did try to adopt her. They just were unable to. Her parents did not relinquish those rights. We'll put it that way. Um so we always knew we were going to do this. Well, when we found out that we were unable to have children, we were already in the process of fostering, trying to foster uh, a, a, a baby boy, a baby girl. We didn't care. We've So we've gone through the entire process with CPS, and it was uh, not a fun process. We'll put it that way. Um, in CPS, there's a lot of liars 
manipulators, you know, just, and I did not like the whole process. Uh, we were going to get uh, two teenage girls. We were going to get uh, a teenage uh, boy. So it, we were going to go down all these different avenues. And ultimately, at the end of the day, nothing ever worked out. And so I told my wife, I was like, I am done. I want nothing more to do with this process at all. It's uh, it's it emotionally just, you know, it's just hit after hit after hit and catching lies and manipulations and stuff the whole time. As I told her, I'm out. I want nothing to do with this any any longer. And I said, unless there's a baby Moses, which I'll talk about, or a private adoption. And those are basically cutting out CPS altogether. Uh, they're still involved, but not not with a heavy hand as they would otherwise. So a baby Moses is highly unlikely that we're ever going to get a baby Moses because a baby Moses is like a safe haven baby. Basically picture mom and dad taking them to a police station or a fire station, dropping them off and saying, I can't care for them. And they walk away. And right. in the state of in the state of Texas, there's only been something like seven in the past, like 20 years of baby Moses. So it's just, it's just unheard of. Um, and private adoption is like 60 to hundred thousand dollars. Also highly unlikely. So I literally got off the phone with her and I said, absolutely not. I am done. We're canceling all this. I am walking away from it. I cannot continue to focus on this any longer. Um, unless it's a baby Moses or a private adoption and that we left it as is. The very next day, I get a phone call, and it's my wife saying, CPS just called, there's a baby Moses in Arlington, Texas, and they need to know if we want to adopt. It's a baby boy. That's all that we know. And I was like, well, of course they want to know if we want to adopt. No, I don't. And she says, but you said a baby Moses or a <laughs> private adoption. But you said this yesterday. <laughs> and she's like, this is a baby Moses. It was the answer to your prayer. And I was like, I know nothing about this, this baby boy that was dropped off. And she says, you, you have 10 minutes. We need to decide. So suck it up, buttercup. And she hung up the phone. So I literally had to sit there for 10 minutes and try and decide. It was like, nothing about this makes me want to do this. <laughs> and I'm like, no. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know what? I did. I did make a prayer. You know, it's I'm out. I'm done with this. You know, let my heart be ready for this to be to be done with all this, unless it's a baby Moses or a private adoption situation. You know, it's I'm done, Lord. Um, and then the very next day, I get a phone call from my wife that she got a phone call from CBS about a baby Moses. I I had no there was there was nothing I could do about this. I called my wife back and I said, I'm in. You know, let let's do this. So they filed all this CPS paperwork because we were already licensed. Um, and I got to see him the next day. I walked into a NICU in Arlington. Matter of fact, the same hospital that I quit that I worked at for 12 years, he was at that hospital in the NICU. I knew the entire staff. I knew the entire leadership. So it was like a homecoming to come back into that hospital. Uh, so I came back in that hospital and I saw that little baby boy. He was three pounds, had bright red hair sticking straight up in the air. And I went, he's a rooster. And <laughs> it's stuck. So we are when we can adopt them because CPS is so inept at their jobs, it seems like it's we still have not been able to adopt them. Um, 
we may be able to get to adopt him when he's a year old. Maybe. Who knows? Right now, they still haven't even filed a birth certificate for him, so he's still a John Doe. Uh, but we are going to name him, when we can adopt him, uh, Court Weston Fireball. But nickname Rooster. Okay. Yep. Why Court Weston? Court, if you watch uh, old John Wayne movies like I do, there's a John Wayne movie called Angel and the Badman. And John Wayne's character in that movie was Court Evans. And I really liked the name, Court now, uh, in the movie, his is Quart, Q-U-I-R-T. So I tried naming Rooster Quart, Q-U-I-R-T, and my wife said, no, absolutely not. It's That's going to be too confusing with him when he gets older, trying to spell his name. So it's now C-O-R-T, Quart. Um, Weston is a family name for men in my family. It's a family middle name. And so we are going to carry that. He's going to carry that middle name uh, and fireball, of course, being our last name. Oh, I got that part. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about, uh, tell me about some learning experiences that you've had since you started down this journey three or so years ago. What's with, with the cattle, with the land, what oh, I guess, oh. What would be the number one thing you'd want to tell somebody that's trying to start out and do what you're doing? Number one, when I started out eight years ago, I got, I purchased 11 acres with a house and we needed to keep up an agricultural exemption. So we needed cows on it. Tax cows. Say that again. Tax cows. Tax cows. Exactly. So we ended up just going out and buying cows. Essentially what ended up happening is my wife wound up on Facebook of all things, seeing a cute bull calf that she liked turned out to be a Texas longhorn bull calf. And she messaged the seller and was like, how much I would like to buy him. So when she told me, Hey, you know, we're going to go take a look at this bull calf. I went, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, we can't just buy a bull. It doesn't work that way. He's got to. He's got to have some entertainment. He needs some ladies. So, ultimately, we ended up purchasing three cows from that same producer as that we bought the bull from. I will tell you right now. Um, that's the extent of my knowledge about cows. When we got into it, when my cows were dropped off, I didn't even have a fence up around the house yet. So the cows were literally you know, laying and pooping and stuff right on the front patio and stuff. I didn't have a trailer. I didn't have working pens. I didn't have anything set up. When they were dropped off, I'm now trying to figure out how do I get water to them. So when it comes time to, you know, talk about my mistakes along the way and learning lessons, that can be in its entire podcast in itself because I made every mistake in the book that there was to make when I started, that's just kind of how I roll. I'm either all in and it's sink or swim. Um, but I will tell you right now that I think it's very, very important. Number one, if you're getting into ranching is find a mentor that's doing, doing things the way that you like. Find a mentor, number one, somebody that you can call on, someone that you can rely on. And number two is have a good support system. You know, for me, it's, it's my wife. So I can't, I can't do this without my wife. I can't do it without 
without help. And right now, you know, we're eight years in and I'm still trying to build up to the point that I'm potentially can bring on a ranch hand. Um, so yeah, you, you need support when you need support and that can also be the mentor as well. And that's going to be the big thing. Look into it. The mistakes that I made were very, very costly mistakes. It did hurt. Um, yeah. And one thing to always remember is that if you lease land, that's tax deductible. You can claim that every single payment on that land. So you don't have to buy expensive land if you want to start off. You, ju you just don't. You don't even have to buy cattle. You can work with customer cattle on lease land. So it's think small. Think think small in the big in the big picture. Think small. It's you do need a truck, and I think you do need a trailer, and you do need a tractor. But find a tractor, good old used tractor that's still running because you can still work on it. And lease some land and use run customer cattle on it. Uh, I tell people all the time if they're wanting to get into ranching but they have no experiences, go work at a feed yard. Go see what that's like. You'll get to know cattle. You'll get to know about their feed. Go work at a dairy because you get to hear all about their their feed regimens. You get to learn a lot about cattle in general. Go work at a sale barn. Just gain some of that experience. It's a lot. It's very hard for some people to get experience on a ranch. Um, so I tell people just go go find a job. Go work for a year. Go work for three months at some of these places. You can even volunteer at some of these places and get get some experience. And then that find your find your mentor that's doing the things the way that you like. So if you like to grass fed, grass finish out on pasture, you're rotational grazing, you're moving every single day, find someone who's doing that that's willing to mentor you. And that's my best advice. Don't, definitely don't start out by buying 11 acres and buying your first four cows and just winging it. <laughs> it's very expensive. Well, it, it's expensive in one way, but it, I kind of have this philosophy that, you know, you pay for all the education that you have. You don't, oh, yeah. you go to college and you get a degree. That's, that's a large upfront cost. Yep. Okay. Or you do it like guys like you and I have done it and just be like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. I'll just go buy some cows and we'll just, you know, we're just going to do this thing. Yep. And you have to learn along the way and pay some of that tuition along the way. That is true. Yeah. And I definitely did. <laughs> I definitely did. Fortunately enough, I did not, I didn't have to pay uh, by sacrificing the animals. The animals always did come first. So they, they never actually went down. So thankfully, I did not have that cost of a mistake, but I did have the financial cost. And you could you could say, you know, you're you're paying for that education and paying for that education. I did. Let's face it. I probably would not have done it any other way. Here it is. I was wearing a suit and a tie to work every day working at a hospital in administration. And I decided I wanted to be a rancher and I wanted to buy cows. At first, I bought my cows for the tax write off. But then ultimately, at the end of the day, I was said, I want this my to be my life. My life. Well, my wife asked me, if you could have any dream job on the planet, what would you do? And I told her I would. I want to be a rancher, but that'll never happen because I would need to own such a vast amount of land and vast amount of cattle in order to just make a paycheck every single month. That it'll never happen. Well, turns out 
It doesn't have to be that route. You don't have to go that route because I'm doing it. I'm doing it now. <laughs> so it's, it's been a wild ride. That's for sure. And that paradigm you were just talking about that you need thousands of cows and thousands of acres. I think that that's true. If you're going to play the commodity game at the sale barn or, or do yes. the formula. That's if 100% you want, true. If you want someone else to determine how much your beef is worth, and then yes, you're you're going to need that. But I determine how much my beef is worth, and I sell it directly to the consumer for that price. I think there's something to be said about doing more with less and being able to have more time to enjoy life. Fact. Fact. Absolute fact. Let's face it. If if I went the other route, and like I just I just went and filmed for a month out of the country i couldn't do that if i was doing this any other way i, I just really could not do that and i would have actually a hard time trying to raise up little rooster while my wife is at work she's a NICU nurse so she's gone 16 to 20 hours you know a day when she's got to work and so it's very very hard to do that with a nine-month-old baby if i went the more conventional route it's very very difficult but this route i can Yep, for sure. I think, you know, a lot of people have a tendency to get caught up in. Let's, well, let's just change what I was going to say. I think one of the things that I hear at a ranching for profit all the time is it's no use in hitting bullseyes if you're aiming at the wrong target. That's a fact. <laughs> yep, that's a fact. Be like on the Marine, you know, Back in the core on the rifle range, like how much shit would you get in for hitting the 10 ring on your buddy's target every time? I can actually tell you. Let's hear it. I can tell you when you're shooting a perfect on the rifle range and it's something that hasn't been done in a number of years, they literally bring in like reporters and stuff. Yeah. And so if you decide you no longer like the attention, so you like to go ahead and shoot at the next next door's target to get the tension off you it's a world you you end up in a world of hurt because you severely embarrassed <laughs> severely embarrassed your command you yeah, end up in a world how many push-ups they made you do or how many miles they made you run for that yeah, oh how many miles they made me run <laughs> uh it's i my legs still hurt <laughs> they still hurt to this day yeah that that, that was a world of hurt yeah, Navy, Navy wasn't quite like that. I did a lot of firefighting and a lot of systems operation. Not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of carrying around a rifle and doing rifle range stuff. <laughs> so what's uh what's coming up for you this year and what's your plans for next year? This year it's get into the intensive grazing. So I really want to get into that, uh, make my mistakes, learn my lessons and uh, try and figure out the best ways to do that. Uh, but it's also continue to grow the social media aspect of it is because that right there is my advertising. It, it truly, it, it's, it's advertising. So I need to continue to grow my advertising, which is my social media, so I can continue to go ahead and make my paycheck to provide for my family. Um, but I'm also trying to diversify the income here on the ranch. That was another just, 
devastating learning lesson here with the with the drought when it came is because we realized real quickly that if my paycheck literally only comes from selling beef to directly to the consumer and we just cut my product line you know my entire inventory you know by 90 percent i mean that's you know that's very very difficult and i need to hedge that with some other profit making potentials here for the ranch and so with that the social media also comes comes with that as well. What like there there's I, I just caught a couple of dumb ideas, you know. And of course, you know, my, my brain's kind of been working the same way. You know, how can I diversify income stream? You know, and, and as a matter of fact, a friend of mine uh, that I run cattle with, he just texted me last night. He's like, Hey, what do you think about buying an apartment complex? I said, Well, I think that I don't want to, but you probably should. Not a bad yeah. idea. You know, then we got into talking about your know, occupancy rates and what percent occupancy rate makes the payment maintenance. Uh, anyway, diversification is never a bad thing. And, you know, like where your house is, you live mm -hmm. in the middle of your property. I yes. don't, I have to commute six and I have to commute like eight miles to work. Like it's, eight miles, about 10, 11 minutes for me to get from my house to ranch headquarters to get to my side-by-side. -side. Gotcha. I, I can be other parts of the ranch a minute or two quicker, but mm -hmm. that's pretty much it. So, and I, I just have like three and a half acres here. And, you know, okay, what else can a guy do to diversify income streams? I mean, you sell fishing leases, hunting leases, well, mm -hmm. you don't have that big of a place to hunt or fish to hunt on. You don't have a fishing pond. There's still, I bet there's probably still a place or two for a couple of little cabins. You tuck back in the trees oh, yeah. and Airbnb out like, yeah, it might cost 60 grand to have an off-grid tiny house dropped out on the property, dig a septic and run power to it. Might mm -hmm. be 60 grand. That might be a little on the cheap side. But how many nights you got to rent that sucker out at $300 a night to pay for it? Yep. But mm, there's some, there's some, but then you got somebody else on your property an awful lot. Well, and there's also some tax liabilities as well. It's because part of your agricultural exemption is that you're not making money on that land in, in any other way. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I get that's, that's a Texas thing here. I just, oh. it's, you know, it's agritourism. It, it is yes yeah and so that there's some there's some ways to get around it but you got you got to think about it yeah uh my whole family is trying to get me to do a like a um airbnb or a bed type breakfast type uh out over here on our property at the back of the property and stuff and i think it would go very very well i think it would do very very well we are currently looking at trying to navigate some of those tax issues and those types of things but yes, I think it, that is a absolute wonderful, almost passive uh, profit potential there. Yep. And then if you do ever get to the point where you need to hire a ranch hand, you shut the Airbnb down and stuff them in there for ready-made employee housing if need be. Then, you know, I didn't even think about that. Hmm. <laughs> I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I got to think about things like that because there aren't any houses around here. Oh yeah. Like, yep. You know, there, there's a couple houses for sale in sun city 
and I don't know, I don't know prices. I mean, we're talking a community of 45 people, not even a gas station. Yeah. Okay. Nearest grocery store, nearest fuel is 20 miles away. And that's also coincidentally where most of the housing units are available in the area. Okay. 20 miles. Doesn't sound like a big deal. That's a 40 mile round trip to work every day. Yeah. yeah. That's that much extra. I got to pay that person to drive out. Yep. You know, that, that, that's, that's wage that they're not going to get is because they're going to have to spend that much money every day to drive out 40 miles, which is probably like two gallons of gas, which is 10 bucks. When it costs yep. you 10 bucks every day to get to work, it makes somebody not want to come to work. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to do something similar because there's, there's nothing out here as far as houses or rental houses type thing. They would literally have to go to Waco or Corsicana, which is an hour away. Yeah. Yep. I, I would definitely have to think about that too. I got to recycle some coffee real quick. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Roger that. And we're back. I guess if Joe Rogan can get away with it, I get I can get away with it. Absolutely. It's, it's one thing I did not survive the military without picking up was a crippling addiction to caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> As you take a drink of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> All right. So plans for 2023, growing beef business. Keep moving forward with that. Expand, diversify. Uh, Let's talk, like, are you looking to grow back from, from 10? Are you looking to expand back? What do you think your carrying capacity is? Or are you going to be trying to figure that out this year with, a little more intensive management and rotation grazing. That exactly right there. So I'm going to try and figure it out with the intensive grazing because I also need to be a little bit more selective on the cattle that I'm bringing in as well when I'm moving in that direction as well. So it's not necessarily a, quite a numbers game at that period of time. It is very much going to be a quality of numbers that period of time because it needs to, I need to be able to have the numbers to sustain uh with the intensive grazing uh but also need to have the cattle that can also thrive under that that type of intensive grazing as well so this is it's a learning lesson for me so i'm literally having to go through it and just kind of learn can i carry more on my land doing it this way uh than what i currently have right now so uh, ultimately, I think that I do not have enough cattle on my property right now at this moment of time uh, that I will need some more cattle. But the one thing I don't want to do is get into where I've, I've got too many head again. Okay. I, and that's, I understand that. And I've always tried to be, a, always try to be, yeah, me, always try to be. My philosophy would be, you know, on my ranch with my cows. I would never want to have, let's just say more than, I would never want to be more than 75% full of my own cows for that year. Okay. So, you know, depending on the year, you know, if it gets less rain, uh, the reason for that is like 75% of the grass, I want it to be dedicated to my cows and probably the worst possible year we could ever have and that's the most number of my own that i'd ever want not real sure what that number is and the reason i say that is you know it's part of the you know we're 
just before we took a break, we were talking a little bit about diversification. Mm -hmm. You're all in on the direct-to-consumer grass-fed beef business. I totally respect that. I'm trying to build build my very similar business, but at the same time, I'm also maintaining a custom grazing business with three different customer clients. And when I took this thing, when I started to take things over in 2008, my dad had one client for all three cells of the ranch. And I quickly diversified, I quickly brought in a second one. And several years ago, I decided that I was going to bring in a third and maybe I'll go back to two, but you know, three is an okay place to be. And I never want to be in a place where I'm putting all of my eggs in one basket with any one enterprise or with any one client. So I have my cows and my grass fed beef business which is building and started to, you know, actually started to produce some product. And then I have my custom grazing business, which is awesome because it's a second base hit every year. I mean, it's good, reliable income every year and it's my capacity balance. Yeah. So let's just say I have a hundred cows and the next three months, it just rains a lot. And I determined that I can run 200. Well, I can just pick up the phone and I can get those. That's I get awesome. those customer cows in to to keep my cash flow up and keep growing my cow herd and 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 stay on my stock plan. So yeah, I went to uh, went to ranching for profit, and we'll go ahead and do that since we haven't done that one today. Uh, <laughs> when I went to ranching for profit in the fall of 2019, I developed a stock flow plan for this enterprise, and when you're when you're running a stock flow plan out eight years, which is how far I ran mine out. There's a lot of variables that are, of course, going to change, you know? So I ran, I ran the best case, the worst case, and then kind of the middle case scenario. And I'll be honest, we're not far from the worst case scenario where I, where I thought I would be. Um, And it's going to take some time to build back to where I want to be with my own replacements and with the number of cattle that I have. So my question is to you, 10 cows is a very difficult place to build a herd back from. I mean, 10 cows, five heifers is, you know, that's what you're going to get. That's, and depending on what your criteria is, I feel like you're going to have to be buying quite a few cows as replacements to replace cows you're harvesting and also to increase your replacement rate. So what kind of cows are you going to go back and buy when you need to go buy cows again? Yeah. So that's, that is, man, that is the kicker right there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't exactly know yet. So when we, when we went back down to 10 cows, I still have 10 cows, like, like in my picture here, but I still have their heifers. So it's, I am going to try and pick up their heifers and they are going to be, added on um into the herd as well once they get out of weaning age about about a year old then they'll be introduced back into the herd again but that's also where things are also coming to play with my direct to sale uh beef as well to consumers because we've had a a demand actually for a higher fat beef they want a higher fat more marbled beef than what uh, can be offered with the Texas Longhorn. So we've, we have moved into some red Angus 
we have moved into some black Angus as well. And so uh, it's, I'm trialing that. I'm literally testing it out right now uh, just to kind of see what it is that that can offer. I can tell you that I did go to the RA Brown Ranch. I did pick up uh, some of their registered uh, Angus heifers and we did process them. And I had some of the absolute best numbers that I've ever seen. And this, they're all grass fed out there as well. So, but I mean, a 70% conversion rate was just unheard of when, when it's coming with the Texas Longhorns, yet that's what their heifers offered me at my same processor. So I am trialing and kind of testing the waters on exactly what it is I'm going to go with. The big caveat here is I could find an absolute well-marbled grass-fed beef option with a potential other breed other than the, the Texas Longhorns. And that's all fine and great, but they may not do well with intensive grazing. And so that's where I start running into, I've got to kind of trial it. I've got to see what is going to work, what's not going to work. It is going to be an adventure, that's for sure. And it could take some time to get my numbers back up. It, it truly can to try and figure out what is, what I'm trying to trying to do is I'm trying to figure out what is going to work on our pastures right here across all growing seasons, across from droughts to heavy rainfall. And what cattle am I bringing across that will thrive in all of those conditions with this uh, new grazing management style. And so for me, something that, you know, I've never done before, nobody around me has done it, it on, on the same soil and the same grass. So I'm essentially going to be doing the testing to try and figure out what is actually going to work on this place. I know exactly how that feels. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> I can tell you that uh, you're running Corriente. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, Oh, Hobbs, Sisters Cattle Company, he changed his name, Fire and Salt, yes. uh, has also been running uh, Corriente as well. On, uh, So I have been very much thinking of going that direction, but unfortunately that it does not change what my customers are also asking for with a higher uh, marbled uh, content. So it's... <clears throat> I've got to try and play with it. I got to figure out. But if let's face it, is I can find more Corriente cattle at a better price to meet this grazing management uh, practice than I can Texas Longhorns. So I imagine I am probably going to end up replacing a lot of those Texas Longhorns that I sold with Corriente cattle just because I can get them at a better price point. And let's face it, I think that they'll do fine on this, but I am going to have to trial it. Do you think you would stay? I guess, let me back up. What, what direction do you think you'd go with bull choice? Ooh. Or what, what, I guess, what would you be trying to, what, what in that, what in your cow herd, what would be your first issue you'd want to try to correct with a bull? Would that be the marbling and the, and the finishing ability? Well, so as of right now, yes, with, with what I have sitting on my pasture right now, yes. But I think that that could also change depending on what it is I put on my pasture in the future. What I put on the pasture in the future could be something that has, you know, better marbling, those types of things, but maybe more difficulty calving. And so I'm going to try and find a bull that helps with that ease of calving and such a little bit. So I think my 
my bull selection for right now is going to be very different from my bull selection a year from now. I I don't think I'd worry a whole lot about calving ease with Longhorns or Corrientes. Yeah, well, and so what it is I've been kind of thinking about is doing a uh, Charlet, getting a Charlet bull, doing a Charlet cross, um, and going that route while also still maintaining a registered Texas Longhorn for you know, to play the horn lottery, as I like to call it, within the registered Texas Longhorn. So just keep them on those cows. But as far as my beef production is doing the uh, Charlet, just try and put some more weight back on these animals. And from after talking to my mentor, who unfortunately recently passed away last year, uh, he said that the Charlet and the Texas Longhorns cross the absolute best over anything else that he's ever uh, tried dabbling with himself. So I'm going to play upon his 50 years worth of testing and experience and probably move in that direction as well and try that. I, I mean, he's on to something They're, those, I think those are definitely good bulls, you know, mm -hmm. a, a good type of bull and a good thing to look at, you know, the Charlays smoke calves so well, like mm -hmm. I know a guy, I know several guys that made, pretty decent living with black coriander cows and white charlet bulls and selling those straight up smoked calves at the sale barn and mm -hmm. they bring what a good black one would bring they'd bring what a good red one would bring yeah and and he said that they always grew great in the feed yard he said they grew just as well in the feed yards as a straight up angus would that's awesome that's awesome but i mean and i i'm not going to say that i dislike charlet as a bull I think that Charlet would take me in the wrong direction too fast. I think it would, I okay. think it would take, I think it would put too much on the carcass for me. Okay. So what would you use? Um, well, you know, let's turn this back around. <laughs> we're going to put, uh, we're going to put some scimitol bulls back in this year. Um, the, okay that a friend of mine picked up from Michael Reverend Wild Ranch out in Georgia. Yep. Those, those four really cool, uh, red baldy bulls that he had. Oh yeah. Yeah. We've, yeah. we've got those now. I love it. Uh, I think he called it like a Hamish and Hamish and Weasley. And I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. We can. Yeah. <laughs> <names. laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so those, those scimitar bulls, um, and since they got here, I watched them real hard for about the first 60 days after they got here, just to see how the diet changed and the, you know, the, the different forages, yep. different forage affected them and how they went body condition and couldn't even tell. I mean, they just, they just, they maintain body condition so well on nothing. How about that? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to put those scimitol bulls back out. And then I have a half Mashona, half South Pole bull. Oh, no, I'd be interested in that. Yeah. Uh, that actually came to me again from Michael at Reverend Wilder Ranch. But okay. uh, this little bull that I call Carlos came to me by way of Richard at Hat Creek, uh, Hat Creek Ranch, Hat Creek Cattle Company. Yeah. Up, yeah. Uh, Cater. How about that? Yeah. So I've got a little half Mashona, half South Pole that was out for half the breeding season last year. He'll be out all of it this year. Um, and we're going to put those scimitol bulls out. So I love that. And there's, there's, there's definitely something to say about using, 
a bull that has been raised up by a cow in an intensive grazing situation and using them on your herd that you're trying to move into an intensive grazing pasture management style. So there's definitely something to be said about that as well. And well, I'll talk about bull selection a little bit. You know, we're all guilty of it. We all get bull selection catalogs in the mail and we all love looking at them, right? I open a lot of them and there's EPDs and it's a number between like negative one and positive one. And I don't understand it. Okay. I open a kit Pharaoh catalog and I see one to four stars. I can understand that. Right. But the important thing is you can buy on those EPDs. You can buy reputation bull. You can feed condition and fertility into anything. Yep. I'll say that again for the slow guys in the back. You can <laughs> feed condition and fertility into anything. I don't trust a picture in a catalog. I don't trust a video sale. I want to go to your ranch. I want to see that bull stand on the ranch on a Tuesday afternoon. Yep. And he's not pretty for sale when you haven't been feeding the balls off of him. Yep. I want to see him in February. I want yep. to see him in December. Don't show me, don't show me a picture after he's just been washed and groomed and shaved in a show ring. I don't care that you think he's worth a quarter of a million dollars. He's worth exactly zero to my operation. A bull from my neighbor that was born on grass and has never had grain. That's a bull that's worth money to me. Mm -hmm. A bull from a neighbor 40 miles away that's been line breeding the same Hereford genetics on the same kind of grass that I have in the same rainfall and the same temperature. Been line breeding that herd for 40 years. That's the bull I want to buy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to buy one from the breeder that packs it in a dry lot and feeds it wet beet pulp all year and makes it weigh 2,000 pounds when it's 14 months. That is not a bull that I need to own. I need to own a bull that can live in the pasture all year, that's got good feet, good legs, he can travel, he's not too big, and he can go to work. Yep. And when it's done with the breeding season, I want to be able to put him in a pasture and forget about him for 10 months. <laughs> right? That's a good bull. Yep. And I think that a lot of guys get caught up, you know, the bull of the month club or buying EPDs. And okay, that's great for some operations. That won't fit mine. Yeah. I mean, my bulls have to be cheap. They have to be functional. They have to be efficient on grass. Who cares if they're in the bottom percentile for marbling on feed trial? I don't feed corn. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, and I, I think there's some things on EPDs on bulls that aren't a bull trait, like calving ease. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, the cat, the calf size is going to have something to do with that. But whether how much ease the cow has having the calf is not a function of the bull that bred her nine months ago. It's a function of how her pelvis is structured and right. how her body is shaped, how wide that pelvic opening is, if she's going to have an easier or difficult birth. I mean, granted, it's it's a lot easier to squeeze a 40-pound calf out of a hole the size of a lemon than it is a 90-pound calf. I get that. But it seems like a lot of the calving ease comes from the cow. Yep. Oh, that just, I'm also not a bull breeder. I'm not a seed stock yeah. guy. Yeah. I don't have an animal science degree. So that's probably why I don't understand that stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I just, I visited some big, well known ranches out here in Texas. 
And while visiting with them, I also talked to them about the EPDs within their herd. And uh, every single one of them told me they don't focus in on the EPDs as much as I would think. They said it just, they really don't. Um, now, I did did have some discussions with them about the te about the testing, about how to pr properly read those EPDs, those types of things. And uh, after visiting with them, I think I'm even more clueless than I was before. But um, yeah, I I ultimately I need something that is going to fare well for our herd on this soil and this grass with my herd, and that's. Unfortunately, because I have not ever ran in this direction before on this soil and this grass and no one else around me has done it this way before. Uh, yeah, I'm very much going to be in the testing game and I'm probably going to make some mistakes along the way. <laughs> when I started doing when I started doing strange things with stock density. And I'll just be real honest, that was like in 2019. Mm hmm is when I really, really decided I was going to do something strange with stock density. And I was the first year I strip grazed and it was a learning experience. So I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm old hand at this or I've been doing this forever. Yeah. And it is a learning experience. And there's very few people. There are people that have been doing a lot longer than I have. There's a lot of people that have been doing a lot less than I have about the mm -hmm. same time frame you have. And we're all going to have to learn together. Yep. And it's, it's one of those things that a rising tide is going to lift all boats. And we've lost the knowledge on, there's a term that I'm trying to invent, but I can't, I just don't have the words right now, but it's like reclaiming our, you know, our herding, grazing, grass management skills. Cause they just haven't been, they haven't been taught and they haven't been, those skills haven't been valued for a very, very long time. And I think that that's changing. Agreed. At least I hope it's changing. I hope it's changing outside of our echo chamber. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's number one, it's, I'm not, I haven't been preaching it yet. I'm hearing it. So that that's the absolute wonderful thing about it. And not only that is our customer base is asking about it. And I think number one, that if you want if you want any producer to move in any different direction, it is very much like trying to steer a big Navy vessel. It's like, you know, throw that rudder and wait years and that ship will finally turn. Or you could just, if their customers ask for something different and say they're willing to pay for it, I tell you what, that's a real, real easy decision for producers at that moment of time. They're either going to make the change or they're not. And right now, with our customers, they're asking for this. That makes it really easy for me to go ahead and drink this Kool-Aid and start looking at it. And right, wrong, and different. When the customer starts asking for it, it's up to industry to deliver. It's up to the producers to deliver. And in this case, I like it's it's hard to see how we're not going to be on the side that eventually wins or prevails that you know this this land management ethic grass-based cattle managing in tune with nature getting away from a feedlot type model or just you know having a sacrifice pasture where you feed hay and being able to connect with the consumers that's why you know the 
the whole concept of shake the hand that feeds you is important. You're connecting that producer directly with a consumer. You're telling the story of your, of their food. You are telling them the story of how you grew their food. Mm -hmm. And if we don't treat our food any better than we treat our fellow humans, we should treat our food better as good as we treat our fellow humans because you are what you eat and that food builds other humans. I, Fact. that was a rabbit trail from where I was really going. Um, <laughs> but it's the whole method of connecting consumers to producers. You know, there's a lot of power in people voting with their food dollar. You know, I, I, I've said that for years, like there's so much power in people voting with their food dollar. Like consumers are really the ones that drive all the choice. Consumers are the ones that drive product development from a certain point of view. And we got to give them what they're wanting. Agreed. Now there's throughout history, it's a, it's, it's been proven. I mean, let's, let's face it. Otherwise, you know, the, the customer will buy what I give them that year. There's years and years and years of experience to actually state, state that you go into any restaurant and the, the Thursday special is the product that's about ready to go expired. And so here it is. We're telling them that's the special. Here's the good thing. You should try this, yada, yada, yada. And the customer buys it. This is where I think COVID changed things uh, significantly. For some reason, and, and maybe someone else knows the reason for this, but for some reason during COVID, everyone started to kind of want to know where their food came from. How was it produced? Where did it grow up? You know, they started asking questions. They never asked me those questions before. And so there was something else driving them. They started asking me if I had true grass-fed beef. And, and I was like, what do you mean by true grass-fed beef? And they're like, I don't want something that's been grass-fed, you know, for the last couple months. I want something that's been grass-fed for its entire life. I was like, oh, I raised Texas Longhorns. That's that's what they eat. It's, nobody's taking them, putting them into feed yards and, you know, type thing. Uh, it does happen. I'm not saying it never does. But um, and so people started telling me they only wanted true grass fed beef. And so it was like, OK, that's all that we're we're feeding. Great. This is a wonderful product for you at that moment of time. And then now. Let's face it, nature is forcing my hand to change this. Uh, into the intensive grazing as my management style because of the drought, yada, yada, yada. But it's because I'm moving into this direction because my customer is still asking for that true grass-fed beef animal. This is a first that it seems kind of like that the consumer is coming back and saying, no, I want this product. Now, instead of us going, go, you should buy this product, it's on sale. So there's been a change uh, uh, out there for some reason, somehow. I don't know why, but I can tell you that I absolutely love it. It's empowering the consumer to now decide what it is that they want to feed their family and how they want to grow their family. Um, and if I'm allowed to be a part of that, it's I'm, I'm going to cherish every second of that. It's I am honored, absolutely honored, and I. Does that mean I'm going to have to change my whole way of school of thinking, change my grazing practice, all those things? Yes, but it's in order to meet the end consumer's desires and wants. Absolutely. 
And I think that's such a vast change over the past. I agree. I agree. And I, I hope it continues. I hope it doesn't slow down. I hope it continues or accelerates and it just continues to keep building on itself as we go through the future. And I, I think we're to the point where, you know, the, the grass fed pasture fed, no hormones, no antibiotics. We've beat the 3%. Like we've broken past 3% of the beef market. And the reason that's important is until you, until you hit roughly like 3% of the market, you're still a fringe. You're still a niche. Mm -hmm. It's like 3% and above. That's when, that's when you're established and that's when you start to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're almost right there with grass fed beef. There's, I think there's also maybe some large industry pressures and forces trying to resist that consumer demand simply because all the structures that are already built. Yeah. Lots of processing plants. Oh yeah. You know, the way the whole production commodity ag system is set up, it's going to be a slow, painful shift for that whole system to shift over to a production system like you and I have. And it's not going to happen overnight. And it's, it's going to be largely driven, I think, because a lot of the consumers of that existing product are going to be aging out. And the new generation of consumers that's on social media, that's listening to stories like yours, like mine, like Tucker Brown over on, you know, R.A. Brown Ranch, that's listening to Hobbs, that's listening to Michael or Trevor or anybody else that we love on TikTok or, you know, Facebook or Instagram. We're gaining customers. We're gaining mm -hmm. customers faster than the big four are gaining customers. Right. And... I, th I think the future looks really bright for, uh, for grass fed. I think there's good profit margins in it. And, um, I think we just got to keep after it. I totally agree. And I, it's, there's, there's something to do with it. When you start playing with nature instead of against nature. And at the exact same time, you start meeting customer demand that does care about the well-being of that product, but also the environment that it was produced in. There's nothing negative with that. There's nothing, there's no negative light that you can really shine on that. This is a benefit to everything that it possibly surrounds, everything from literally the soil, the nutrition, the the native grasses, you know, the improved pastures. It's a benefit to truly everything, including the, the quality of life for the animal and the end consumer as well. And I think based upon that and the fact that science is actually going to prove that you are sequestering carbon. And let's face it, there's still the game of carbon credits out there of people literally buying the carbon that's in your soil. I have a feeling that's going to get very 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 expensive when it comes to diversifying income hello that's that's a whole other way that you could do it so there's there's something here and i think it's definitely here to stay and it's it's going to be around for a long time yep yep i think uh, i think soil carbon's a game changer and i think we're gonna have to i'm gonna we're gonna leave that one for another day yeah i've got to yeah. get going i've got to go feed some cows got to go roll out some bales for some client cows uh mm -hmm. 
So where can folks find you on the internet or social media and how can they get in touch with you? So on uh, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, I'm Cattle Guy. On Instagram, some jack sauce stole my Cattle Guy handle. So I'm Cattle Guy Official on Instagram. But yeah, generally, if you just want to do a Google search for Cattle Guy and just look at videos, you'll find me. Awesome. Good stuff. I forget anything? No, sir. I don't believe so. I really appreciate this opportunity. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you, boss. Well, thanks. Thank you. And thanks for sharing your story. Um, and I, I think it's a great story. And there's a lot of things I think I'd like to hear a little bit more of on another day. And awesome. Sounds I, good. I appreciate you opening up today and sharing your story. And um, thank you for that. I thank you for your time. And the rest of you guys, go do something with your week. Indeed. <laughs> Have a good one, y'all.